You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hi, welcome to Culturally Determined. I'm your host, R.A. Cohen-Wade, and my guest today is Nathan Alabach. Nathan, could you introduce yourself? Yeah, thanks for having me on, Aria. I'm a, a social media manager, and I my prim- primary client is a uh, Steakum Meats. So that's like what uh, I'm most notable for, I guess, on Twitter. <laughs> right. So thank you for joining us today. Um, yeah. So who are you, and why are you here? So you um, you run you you came to mind notice because you run the um, Twitter feed and other social media for a company called Steakum. And you've innovated in a number of ways that are interesting and other uh, major brands are either copying you or kind of like moving in the same direction. And you've done some interesting, perhaps controversial stuff uh, <laughs> from this account. So why don't, okay, why don't we start with what, what is Stakeum? Because I honestly had not heard of it before <laughs> it became social media famous. That's great. Um, so it was invented in the seventies by this guy named Gene Gagliardi and he essentially invented it as like back back in those days when kids were eating cheesesteaks, which is like a Philadelphia based um, sandwich type of sandwich. They were um, choking on like the steak. So it was just one of those like weird like he also invented popcorn chicken. So it was like hmm. back in the day when they were kind of inventing all these weird meat styles. And this is just one of the ones that I guess kind of it just took off at that time for like families with um, like latchkey kids like they could make it when they would get home. And uh, as it was so it's a legacy brand, like 1975 is when it launched, and it's kind of passed ownership a few times over the decades, but it's always been that sort of, like, I don't know, like, working class feeling, you know, like, kids can eat this when they get home. It's kind of cheap-grade beef that you can make sandwiches or cheesesteaks or whatever out of. <laughs> right, so it's a frozen meat product. Is yeah, that right? exactly. And frozen like, beef cheese. That's how, what I like to say. And, and you kind of, like, can fry it up. And you get something that's yeah. kind of like a Philly cheesesteak in your exactly. at home. Exactly. Yeah, it takes like a minute to make. Like you throw it on a pan. It's like literally a frozen sheet of meat, meat, and then you throw it on a pan, and within like a minute, two minutes, it's sizzling and ready to go. So okay, so check it out. <laughs> this it, already it, feels like an ad. So. Right. So yeah. So I grew up in New Jersey, uh, you know, which is in the greater Philadelphia area, at least parts of it, mm-hmm. and I had not heard of this product. And um, so it's it's kind of a regional a regional thing around like. Philadelphia and maybe other parts of the Midwest or is it yeah, more it's, Eastern it's thing? Like, I would say, I don't know what the exact numbers are. I would guess that probably 75 plus percent of the uh, distribution is like Philly, New York, New Jersey, Maryland, just like this, uh, like East coast area. But there is, there's semi-national distribution around the country, but it's mostly sold to like Walmarts and places like that. So it's not, not like a very notable brand outside of the East coast. Okay. Yeah. And I, I live in, um, outside Rochester, New York, where Wegmans is the predominant supermarket chain, and I, I checked on your website, and they do a, they do carry it, but I guess I've just never noticed it in the supermarket. <laughs> um, but you know, people, if you want some frozen meat uh, product, or maybe for your children, uh, check it out. Okay, so then, who are you, and how did you come to be the social media manager for Steakum? Oh man! Oh, there's a long story. There's a short story. Um, you can, I'll try, maybe in the middle. Something yeah, I'll, the tr- middle. I'll try to meet in the middle there. So I mean. <laughs> I, uh, I work for my family's advertising agency. It's a pretty small agency. It's about 20 people, um, mostly regional clients, which Stakem is a pretty regional client base. Like we're outside of Philly, so it's a similar area to where you grew up. And um, basically, like I, I fell into the job a few years ago um, through a long series of events, and it was right around it was 2014. It's right around the time 
when a lot of brands were experimenting with social media, like joining Facebook and Twitter and trying all sorts of stuff out online, which prior to that, there wasn't a lot of like mass usage, at least in the public eye. So um, essentially, like I started working social media here and around 2015, I guess it was, we got Stakem as a client and we just, you know, it's traditional ad agency stuff. Like we'd run pre-roll ads, we'd do radio ads, like rebranding, like all that type of stuff. But it wasn't until... 2017, uh, the first half of the year, they essentially ran up their budget for the entire year by spring. And we had the account and it was one of those things where, you know, like when, when a client runs up the budget, it's like, okay, what can you do? Like, you know, you're on retainer. Like we didn't really have a lot of options. So, so there's no money um, left to like purchase. purchase yeah, exactly. Life. We couldn't, we couldn't really do too much. So to, to put a long story short, um, I used to be like growing up, I was a pretty frequent listener of the Joe Rogan podcast in like 2011 or so. Mm-hmm. So I, like a lot of my buddies, like kind of follow that sphere of people still. And long the, basically on um, his 1000th episode, I think it was, he had this uh, guest on, it's one of his old friends, Joey Diaz, this comedian. And I guess he started telling a bunch of stories about Stakem from growing up. And since it was like the thousandth episode, it was pretty viral and everybody was talking about it. So a few friends of mine were texting me like, oh, like Joe Rogan just had this guy on, like they're talking about Stakem. So I got it in my head, like as this, you know, dumb millennial who just gets this on the internet all the time. And like, I like, I know these kind of weird cultural references. I was thinking, oh, Joe Rogan, he's got like a huge platform. This would probably be a good opportunity to jump in with some engagement. So I pitched it to uh, my boss to pitch to the people at Stakem, and I was like, "Hey, this is like a pretty cool um, shout out. Like, you know, not every brand just gets a shout out on a show this big. It would be cool to jump on Twitter or something and see what we can do." So without a budget, I just kind of started doing it in my free time at work. Like whenever I had some downtime, like I'd hop on the Twitter after work just for the hell of it, and um, eventually it just kind of snowballed. So that was like my entry point, and it was one of those things where because we didn't really have the budget. There weren't a lot of eyeballs on it. And like I was still working within an approval process, but it was kind of detached from like the main, you know, what the client was paying attention, you know, toward. Like they weren't really thinking of, of Twitter as any sort of, you know, driving engine for the brand. So about, um, I guess it would have been, I started in August tweeting for them, and I guess it would have been November that it started picking up steam. And then from there, it just kind of doubled on itself month after month as like media started picking up some of the tweets and the, there was like a main, uh, narrative driver we did this campaign called hashtag verify stakem because the company had been around since 1975 like it had a pretty big following like not on twitter but just like in general and we just couldn't get verification and it was right around the time when uh, richard spencer got punched in the face so they were like there was like all this heat on twitter where people were like why are you verifying nazis so then they shut the whole thing down <laughs> so there was no more verification on twitter and we were like well we're a company like how do we get this blue check mark and it just became this like kind of fun tongue in cheek thing that a bunch of people got involved in. And that's what initially made the account successful. So once it got successful, I was able to pitch it to my bosses and be like, hey, let's make this a full time endeavor. Let's keep going on this thing. And, and they were they were um, cool enough to let me continue doing it. So <laughs> OK, so, yeah, so there's a lot there. Um, so once you took over the account, I, I assume that like maybe the old like before, before it was kind of like a semi dormant account or totally dormant. And then one has to wonder who are the type of people who just want to follow their favorite, like, frozen meat product on Twitter, like, what are their lives like? But anyway, um, it was probably largely kind of standard brand stuff, I assume. So, it, like, maybe talking about a new flavor or something or, you know, a recipe or, or something along those lines. But then you changed it to be this, this like, voice that 
uh, is is really what grabbed people, and is 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 why I'm talking to you today. So, can you talk about, yeah, what, was it immediate that you were just like, let's go in this totally new direction, or did it evolve? And how did you? And also, is is the voice that you developed is that kind of like a is that kind of your voice more or less, or is it kind of a created voice in the way that you know, like Chester Cheetah or something is like a created right. voice, right? Right, yeah. I would definitely say on that point that it is my voice. Um, since the beginning of the account, and I've had tons of people say this to me, and we've also had a bunch of interview questions in various publications, because they're always wondering, like, what is going on with this voice? It's very unconventional, and it, it has always come back down to just my own personality, kind of just injecting, you know, whatever stream of consciousness is going on in my brain that day onto the Twitter account, and that's why it's very spontaneous and odd, and just a kind of gravitates your attention toward it because like you're used to even like the the more witty brands like a wendy's or a denny's where you get a lot of these really high level um jokes and just like references like they know what they're doing in terms of engaging their audiences but it's still very scripted like it still feels very like oh that's exactly what wendy's would tweet that's exactly what denny's would tweet whereas what i was doing was just kind of very just bizarre and, and not really see, not really seeming like something a brand should or would say so there was definitely that element of it and obviously and, and did, was, did you go in from the beginning being like i'm just going to do this my way <laughs> or were you starting off being like by the spice that you can mix in with your yeah well, well okay so in the beginning if you think about it in terms of like an advertising model like we did have like a voice developed in terms of like you know, there were there was like a brand funnel where we had like, oh, this is this is the type of consumer that buys steak. I'm like, this is the type of uh, like model we want to go after. Like a lot of the ads prior to when I started running it, they were very masculine. There was a lot of um, like making fun of vegans. It was very just kind of your traditional like when you see those corny meat commercials like about like whether it's hot dogs or burger and it's like you want a man's burger. Like it was very in that vein. So I mean, I I used that as a reference point. Like I started there, but then as the account grew and it became more centered around like just the the personality i had kind of funneled into it then it at one point just became okay this is just i have to admit that this is just myself and luckily like i said luckily the our agency and the client was um you know gracious enough i should say and patient enough to be like this is working we're gonna just go with it because it, it is very unconventional but um to your point before i mean it's interesting i know you, you and i follow some similar political twitter accounts i know and a lot of it kind of teeters in this weird twitter category and um oddly enough the account from whoever ran it before us what whoever the agency was that was doing stakeham's social media before us in 2014 they um they had like an, a run-in with weird twitter essentially that year and yeah. it was like 2013 2014 and a bunch of the like the left twitter weird twitter users were trolling the account and basically whoever was running it at the time didn't understand what was happening. So they just started blocking accounts in mass. Uh -huh. so, so, uh, long story short, like by the time I got the account, there was over 150 accounts blocked on it. So I just went through the whole thing, unblocked, unblocked all of them and started like engaging with them being like, what's going on here? Why are we, why did we block all of you people? Uh -huh. And, uh, found out there was like a whole history on like the something awful forums where, you know, because this hive mind of people, you know, and you know how, how those guys are like, <laughs> Hello, puppy. Oh, that was um, a, that was a kitty. kitty. To, kitty to just, uh, <laughs> I just saw the tail. Yeah, just likes to do cameo appearances. Yeah, so so That's just great. for people who are like, what the hell are we talking about? So so there's Twitter. Most people know that there's, and then there's weird Twitter, which kind of started as I mean, it, it, it's it's a collection of people, many of them anonymous. Some have since like become you know t uh, took 
uh, after you know became their real name or something. But it was, and they were just joking around and kind of they threw a hive mind and collaboration and like the way that memes work with like adding uh, onto previous ideas. They like created the style of communication and um, and then a lot of these people or at least so that a lot of them came from this forum a site called something awful and they migrated to Twitter because Twitter is kind of like a message board in, in a lot of ways. Um, and then some of these people kind of moved into more like the political, the like left political space and like the Chapo trap house people kind of grew out of weird Twitter. And then a lot of the weird, some of the weird Twitter people have kind of faded away. Um, some still maintain their anonymity, like uh, drill, who's the most famous Right, uh, weird, right. weird Twitter a genius creator <laughs> and one of the definitive vo- voices of our era, although probably the majority of people who are watching <laughs> or listening to this have never even heard of this person. Um, and yeah, so he's still anonymous. He's still doing his thing. And then some of them, yeah, became more like a, a persona and, you know, the, the Chapo guys and they're writing articles for, you know, kind of left-leaning outlets and, and stuff like that. So yeah. Okay. So that's 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 all the background. Yeah. On weird Twitter. And and just to add there too, like they essentially created the the cornerstone of what is now today known as like the the corner the corner of the internet that trolls brands essentially. Like they really developed that blueprint early on, just as being so media literate and and so um just tech savvy. Like they're all very deep in the internet culture, so they obviously have like a sense of ownership over the culture itself and just the kind of the value of undermining, you know, traditional institutions and whatnot through humor and through, you know, like subversive technology. So, of course, as the years have gone on and everything's kind of become centralized and brands have kind of hijacked a lot of that culture, you know, they've become more and more critical of the the sort of humanized brand behavior. So that was that was just an interesting little tidbit. Like they we, we had that interaction with them before we even got the account. So then when the account was getting more successful, that was really instrumental in actually getting the account more attention. Like it's, it's kind of worked in, in the exact opposite way that I think they would have wanted, which is, is kind of a shame because I didn't really see it that way. Like I was just some guy running the account and I was having fun and I was in, engaging with these weird Twitter users. And obviously a lot of them are anti-corporate. So their whole idea of what was going on was like, oh, this is like some rogue social media employee. Like we're having fun with them, and we were until the account started getting super popular, and then it became like not cool because I was now using like the the power of the account essentially to to have a platform and to advertise, and it was it was beyond this like sort of insider baseball like community that we had going on. So that was that was essentially the start of it. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. So like. The, um, yeah, so there's an anti-corporate ethos for a lot of these people and, and then you can, you know, uh, Twitter allows you to interact with brands like never before. So you can yell at Wendy's and if Wendy's makes a joke or something and you think it's a lame joke, you can say, fuck you, Wendy's. And then someone, <laughs> you know, at, at the social media department at Wendy's or whatever, uh, will see that. Um, yep. and so, yeah, so then once you're like obviously a brand, but like a, not a very well-known brand, um, you're using these kind of tropes or um, like the vernacular, the way of speech. I mean, you know, like not capitalizing things is kind of one of the, the hallmarks of this. And that's also more, maybe just more like a millennial thing is, you know, not, and you see serious journalists who are millennials who don't capitalize their tweets now because that's right, just right. The, way they, <laughs> the way they talk. Um, but then, yeah, just using, you know, using kind of the, maybe it's also more of like coming from, Reddit or 4chan, these kind of like really lo-fi memes 
uh, that look like they're made in MS Paint or something. Um, <laughs> yeah, so then you're kind of like one of them for a while, but then you become like the popular kid in class. And then they're like, oh, yeah, this is a company. And some of them are socialists and some of them just like, to, <laughs> you know, fuck around. So that, so then like I've seen people turning on you. And I've seen yep. the, the accusation that like you have appropriated the like kind of collective you know, culture that was created by all these people. And, you know, maybe it's only a thousand people who like were actually involved in this, but they like collaboratively <laughs> did this thing and they didn't make any money off of it because they were just do- doing it for fun. And now here comes Stakeham <laughs> and you're, yep. um, and you've like borrowed or immersed yourself or something in this way of uh, communicating, but you're like, you are using it to sell uh, frozen meat products. So what, what is your <laughs> re- oh, response man. to that? Yeah, I mean, it's such a mess, right? Because this is the whole, this is the whole interesting discussion in culture right now, which is the whole brand human integration thing, where it's like, is it a brand or is it a brand that consists of real people that care? And the lines have become so blurry through a platform like Twitter that it becomes really difficult to have meaningful conversations on a topic that, that get you anywhere. Because you're right. I mean, from, from my perspective and this whole thing, like I said before, I just kind of stumbled into this whole, like, I didn't have, I think people from the outside, like people in the weird Twitter community specifically, that maybe were observing this all happen, but not like directly. Like maybe they were right on the outside of it, just kind of seeing their friends interact with Stakem as an account and then being like, oh, it's kind of weird. Like, why is my socialist friend interacting with this brand? But like they all thought it was kind of dumb and innocent. But then, yeah, like once it got successful, it was like, hold up. Did you all just like become complicit in this brand's success in like a social media advertising campaign? Because as soon as, like anything else, like in in advertising, as soon as the account got successful, of course we have media publications like Adweek or HuffPost or whatever reaching out to be like, what's the story? Like, how did this all happen? And everybody's looking for this magic pill to be like, can we write this narrative around it? And what was really difficult for everybody involved, including the people at our agency and the client in the beginning, was like, how do we... How do we create a narrative around this when it really was so much of it? One, luck. And two, it was, it had so much had to do with the actual community of users on Twitter, which were like maybe in part the weird Twitter community. In part, there was this, um, like gawker blogger community called Twinja that was, uh, that was really involved in the beginning. And there was just like a bunch of other random, like users from other Twitter communities. So it's like, so much of the success of the account literally was just other users enjoying it and like interacting and then it just snowballed into success. So it is, it's tricky, man, because yeah, like I, I understand where all those guys are coming from because it really does feel like, oh wow, we just got like appropriated for this ad campaign. And from where I'm standing, like I, I'm on the inside. So like I know there was never like some behind closed doors meeting where, you know, me and a bunch of guys in suits are like evil genius, like <laughs> tapping our fingers together. Like, Oh, we're going to trick all these weird Twitter people into to being our friends. And then we're going to profit off the whole thing. Like that never <laughs> happened. It was just, it's just been me on the account. Yeah. So, so it is, it's really rough because I totally get where they're coming from. You know, I represent stake them as a corporate entity and stake them no matter how innocuous seeming or how, fourth wall breaking i am as the person behind the account ultimately all of this is is means for advertising and it's all means to sell more product for stakeum so I, I get where the the vitriol comes from and like i said like it's it's just a a part of an ongoing trend that's been going on for the better part of a decade where brands have just kind of developed like as this is how i like to frame it real quick that's how i frame it is that growing up you know if you look at the early 2000s with internet culture developing and then 
over, over the course of, you know, 2008, 2009, 2010, you get your Facebook and you get the introduction of Twitter and then later Instagram and all this stuff. As all that was happening, you know, the people who grew up in late, the late 90s and the early 2000s, they were just kids, you know, like figuring out the Internet. They were really tech savvy. They all became, you know, adults and then they got jobs working in social media and they got jobs working in digital and working for these massive tech corporations. So as the people that are my age, I'm 27, got into these positions like we grew up on the Internet. So like now we're the ones essentially hijacking the culture we grew up with selling it back to the people that created the culture. And it's this very tricky moral tension that we're, we're all in right now. Yeah. And I mean, part uh, like kind of core to internet culture is like borrowing or stealing or remixing. I'm actually mm-hmm. coincidence. I'm wearing my, everything is a remix nice. <laughs> uh, shirt right now, which is Kirby Ferguson's project about how, you know, all culture is slicing, dicing and remixing and adding and subtracting what existed before. Um, right. So, so that's part of it is, you know, like memes are popular because everyone can put their own little spin on it and get to like participate in, in it, that the creation of it. Um, but I, I was thinking like, it's, it's, I mean, a, a parallel could be drawn to like, you know, an anthropologist going to a like, uh, island, you know, undiscovered island like 150 years ago and the islanders have like developed this like style of music that's very interesting. And so the anthropologist like takes it back to, you know, the mainland and, and starts playing the music for people and everyone loves it. Um, and then, right. <laughs> so what did the island, like, what did the islanders get out of this situation? Yep. Just because like the, you know, the weird Twitter people, I don't think they ever, at least in the beginning, I, I don't think anyone was involved thinking like, I'm going to monetize this someday. They were just yeah, like, this, right, is, right. this is how I'm going to have fun in my off hours or at work while I'm bored, just shooting the shit and making up weird jokes yep. with my internet friends. And now, and, and now like lots of, you know, people are try- realizing that this is popular and we can use this style of communication to sell stuff or convince people to do, to do oh, stuff. And, and, and even people too, on that level, like insofar as like, since from the course of the beginning in those something awful days when all these weird Twitter people, not all of them, but most of them originated there from that time of the internet to right now. Like if you look at this, the landscape right now, like the kids who are growing up on the internet, they want to be influencers. They want to be YouTubers. They want to be gamers. Like they literally grow up wanting to hijack the culture for profit. Whereas back then it was all these like tech savvy nerds who essentially figured out how to get into these deep parts of the web when no one, it wasn't like it was just this easy thing you could Google or like everyone was talking about it on Facebook or YouTube. Like you had to know where to go. You had to like have some level of, um, you know, intelligence to, to reach these places. There was definitely more of like a love and a passion and like an intimacy for the people that were involved in the culture back then. So I get it. Like, it's just, you know, Part of me wants to be like, ah, stop being pretentious. You know, we're all just trapped in the internet bubble now. It is what it is. But I mean, if you were around back then before memes were a thing, like you had to develop image macros, like you had to create things for people to share. And then, of course, you get all these sites like Reddit, 4chan, Tumblr, who start to aggregate all of it. Now everything's copied, like you said. Everything's a remix. So it's like, I I get where they're coming from. It's just, uh, it just sucks because the internet's nothing like it used to be in that way. Yeah, that's interesting. And and things, you know, there's... You know, you can talk, as you're, we can talk a little bit, um, in a bit about the article you wrote, uh, the history of brands on Twitter. But like, I mean, the history of Twitter only goes back to like 2007 or 6 or something. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's, it, but you can divide it up into like five different eras. So it's like everything is super compressed. And yeah, the, the days of the like the message board where it's just, you know, it's hard to find and it's just a insular little community where people are, 
you know, trading jokes with each other, like those, those days yep. are, are exactly. long gone. Um, <laughs> okay. So uh, let's see, I want to ask you about like irony and how you view irony in your work. And, you know, when you're tweeting from Stakem and you're like people like, you know, it, it's complicated. Like when you're, when Wendy's is tweeting something, it's kind of like, okay, well we know what, like, what, like, we have this character, Wendy, who I guess we don't really know that much about her, but she's like there. And there's like Dave <laughs> Thomas, but he, you know, he's been dead for a long time. Yeah. And then it's, but then it's also this giant multinational corporation. And like, you know, there's a Wendy's literally down the street from me. And, you know, there's actual people. Like if I go into that Wendy's, there's actual people there. Um, and then, so when Wendy's is having this joking persona, it's a little bit more like, I don't know, you know, the, the famous like, hey, like, hello, fellow kids meme or whatever that, that is exactly like you know yeah. the 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 big corporations pretending to just be chill and down with the kids and all that yeah. kind of stuff but then you're like this upstart and most people don't know who you are and then so it's like i don't know how am i trying to phrase this it's like you know always do you think the people who follow stakem imagine like you the 27 year old guy sitting behind the computer because they know it's not corporate you know giant corporate hq or something and when you're talking about the product you know is the, are you talking about the product ironically or sincerely or like are there multiple layers of irony between oh gosh oh <laughs> between... yeah there's so much yeah there's okay so, so much this here, is not I, I, I made a hash of this but what do you what do you think about about all that <laughs> well okay there's man there's a lot there i like to fragment the, the types of Twitter, you, like you said in the beginning, like, who are these people that follow Brams, right? Like, it's always the question on everybody's mind, because you'd think, you know, that the people who tend to flock to Twitter, which is like the, the sort of elite of our society, it's the journalists, it's the media personalities, it's the tech literate people, it's everyone who's kind of cynical and culturally critical of what's going on, right? So they should know better. Like, why why are they playing into this advertising, like, like completely knowingly? But I think, so there's there's one sect of the audience. I think this is the biggest sect, unfortunately. But they're probably forty to fifty percent of the people that follow brands are people that are completely either one unaware that they're advertisements, or two they know that they're advertisements and they just don't care. Like these are people who just are going through life. Maybe they're working a desk job that they don't really care for, and they're on Twitter just blowing off steam. Maybe they're really into political Twitter, say, and then when they, they follow Wendy's because they're just looking for some giggles in between, like, the stream of Trump tweets or whatever. So you have that sect of people, which are the people, if you ask them, like, hey, is this, you know this is a brand, right? They'd be like, yeah, it's a brand. But when they're actually liking the tweets and interacting with it, they're not thinking about that. They're just thinking, like, here's a funny tweet. I like this account. So that's the most people, I think, by far, like the, the largest sect. But outside of that, you have the people who are like in this kind of like irony infused community of Twitter, which is more populated than I think any other major social media platform where it's the culture, it, it compounds on itself and it kills itself so fast because it's so fast moving. So like as soon as a joke, like if a meme came out today, like, like let's say, let, let's just use like the weird flex, but okay meme it's not new but like let's just say as an example like if that came out right now over the next 24 hours that would be spreading everywhere you see it used in in every which context all across twitter and then it would kind of populate into the rest of the internet like you'd find it on facebook instagram reddit wherever and over the next couple days as that became just like normified essentially people either it dies or it becomes like irony infused and then people start to like compound in on itself and use it in weird ironic ways that 
you, the general public will not understand. And that's the only way they can keep it alive is by mm-hmm. keeping it like sacred and, and odd and no one gets it. So I think there's that sect of the, of the Twitter community whatever, that follows these brands because either they like the brands that are being ironic or they're super ironic. So they like to follow brands to like literally, I don't know what it is. It could be, I, I get a lot of like 14, 15 year old gamer kids who they'll respond just intentionally like really, really ironic shit i'll tweet eat beef sheets and they'll be like love this brand and you know that they're you know like you know that they don't really give a shit about the brand but it's just kind of fun for them to be like we're, we're all being nihilistic here we don't really care so i think i don't want to get too deep in it but there's a bunch of these different subsects right and i think that in terms of how you manage the the layers of irony it, it's this weird space for a brand because you read the article that i wrote and if you follow the trajectory of like the beginning of Twitter when brands were first getting involved to right now, we've already essentially reached every possible human emotion that we could do. That, that, that would be new, essentially. Like we've, we've reached anger. We've reached absurdity. We've reached tapping into depression and sadness and anxiety. Like we've hit all these kind of traditional marketing tropes. You know, like you watch the commercials on TV, you see the antidepressant ads, you get the people who are like, sobbing and there's people like hugging each other it's like get your loved ones antidepressants like this is going to make them happy again or you you watch the puppy the puppy milk commercial or whatever where it's like there's trying to rescue dog and you, see, you hear sarah mclaughlin playing in the background like you hear all this stuff and it's none of it's new but it was new for brands on twitter so like as brands integrated these like weird emotional um attachments to what they were doing it became norm- normalized really really quick so as soon as these trends emerged like when wendy started this whole roasting trend which they weren't the first brand to do it, but they were the first brand to like make it internationally popular in 2017. It was literally like within a couple months that all these other brands were roasting people. It was just like, so was this when they were attacking just regular Twitter users or attacking other like McDonald's and both, both like they, they would, they would troll McDonald's, they would troll random users. I mean, it just became a trend so quick. And then all these other brands adopted that trend. And you see that everywhere. Like you see that as soon as, um, you know, like, like one of these, like Denny's does the whole absurdist, you know, surrealist humor and they start doing these really obscure anime memes. You know, you see, then you see Arby's start to do like weird, obscure anime references and it just goes on and on and on. So I think the point we're at right now in 2019, you see much more irony because it's literally like the last thing that brands can, can hijack essentially because everything else has already been hijacked. So it's like, what do you do when you're so like, I, I would go as far to say as every single social media manager for a major brand knows the, the fellow kids subreddit at this point, and they probably go on it every day or every week at least, and they're looking at these references. So, like, what do you do now that all the brands themselves are in on the joke of yeah. making fun of the brands? So that's where we're at right now. <laughs> so the fe- so for people who don't know, the fellow kids subreddit is um, <laughs> where people post uh, things that. Uh, companies did on social media to try to ingratiate themselves with the youth of America. Yeah, cringy, did it, but did it in a cringy, embarrassing way. You know, hey, what's up, fam? That kind of stuff. Yep. Um, and yeah, so that yeah, so that's interesting that the you know the feedback loop is is so quick that it used to be uh you know when I was growing up, if I saw a TV commercial that I didn't like, like maybe I could just make fun of it with my friends. Uh, whereas now, um, if well, if someone if if a brand does something embarrassing on social media, they'll get the direct feedback from the people, uh, 
you know, dumping on them in the in the mentions, and also right. there's like collections of people who, in the spare time, uh, catalog all these embarrassments that that come out of um, you know Madison Avenue at large. So yeah, it's very it's very strange. So where do you think? I mean, talk about this a little bit. Maybe you just I think I can't remember what you said if you just threw up your hands, but like okay, so we've it does seem like we've, there's a point of exhaustion that we've kind of reached with brand Twitter and like what comes you know, what comes after, like, the deep irony. <laughs> I mean, that's, like, I, like thinking back on Wendy's, like, making fun of its customers, like, that is pretty fucked up. And if you think about it, just either from, like, the these are just random people in America who said something stupid or whatever, and we're going to give them a hard time, and just the, like, you know, why would a company want to insult <laughs> its possible yeah. clients? Like, that is very strange also. But I guess it was successful enough just because it got some attention that – uh uh, it became like imita- often imitated, and so much that it became like played out. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, what? Like, do you have any idea, like, what could possibly come next? Um, is yeah. of like the trend in in social media brands. Yeah, definitely. Like, even on that note, though, like, think about it in terms of in the beginning. I think the first um, Wendy's roast that went viral, which was that Amy Brown did in January 2017, where was the person who is basically saying, we all know that Wendy's meat isn't fresh, just, right. like, you know, like, keep, keep get over it. And then, like, the Wendy's person replied and was like, um, you know, like, we don't, you don't need a freezer to keep something fresh. And then basically, like, the, the punchline was you forgot refrigerators existed to them. Right. And right. that blew up. So I think in that instance, and there are some instances still that are like that, where it's an authentic interaction with a person who's probably mad or trying to be cool or some kind of edgelord, and the brand dunks on them. Like, that definitely still exists, but... Also, since that point, because everybody saw how viral it went, it became cool for people to get dunked on by brands. So, like, then you saw all these people going out of their way to try to get made fun of. Like, that's the weird thing about this, like, irony-infused era, because as soon as one of these trends starts, it becomes this thing where kids see it, and they're like, I want social media clout. I'm going to tell Wendy's they're stupid, hoping that Wendy's (laughs) humiliates me to their 2 million followers or whatever. So... There's definitely that element of it, too. And I think um, to the point of right now, I, I kind of get into this a little bit in the article, but we're at the point and, and we see this just in general with, with woke media, with uh, with brands and, and just the, the general direction of politics and culture where brands are trying to now insert themselves into political and cultural discussions, like with the, the Gillette commercial that went viral for um, for like essentially calling out toxic masculinity mm-hmm. And previously, you had the um, the Nike. Well, what, ad did, what did you Kaepernick. think? Of, what did you think about that one? Oh, I actually had an episode where I talked about it on this show oh, cool. um, with someone who uh, who works at a brand agency and was kind of ambivalent about what they were doing. But how, how do you? What do you think about how that one went down? I, I don't know, man. I mean, it's like it's it's similar to what I'm doing in the sense where like I don't have a moral high ground to stand on to be like what you're doing is wrong, what I'm doing is right. But at the same time, it's like. It's so a brand that size. Like here, here's how I like like to think about it. Like brands are unethical. Like advertising is unethical as a practice, right? So like if that's the starting point we start at, there's still a range of like of ethics within that. So I mean, Stakem as a company is a family-owned regional company. So it's a lot different than Wendy's, a like you said, a multinational corporation that's represented by tens of millions more dollars, if not billions, and and millions more employees. So it's a lot different than. Our company, and then we're a lot different than some mom and pop shop who's trying to advertise their like ice cream down the street, and they're a lot different than some entrepreneur or some podcaster like you or a YouTuber who's trying to do their own thing and make money. So like, 
there's a scale of efficacy, I think, where, you know, advertising is like a necessary evil. We all kind of have to do it if we're trying to make money. But there's definitely like the, the human level at the base and then the corporate level at the top where you have like your Amazons, your Netflixes, all those companies. So I think the bigger the company is, the, the more malicious it gets, just inevitably. Like it's, it's hard to, hard to miss that because like we know that there's more, there's more red tape, there's more bureaucracy, there's more, People who are like trained and and it's their sole job to have insights into their target demographics. Like you do have these button down people in boardrooms, like looking at who's our, how do we get tap into this Gen Z group? Like how do we how do we reach these gamers? Like how do we like there are those people who are mm-hmm. actually like maliciously targeting you know whether it's vulnerable or impressionable groups of people for advertising. So I think that exists all the way down. It's just scaled. And the higher you scale it with a company like Gillette or a company like Nike, I think that their goal, like their intention, it can't be anything but bad because it's all about bottom line. Like it's all about them profiting. Like they're not, they're not doing this because out of some like good intention, you know, well-hearted, you know, mission to bring down toxic masculinity. They're doing it because it's a, it's a targeted and, and very precise move. In their demographic, they see the way that their their um, sales are shifting. They see the change where you see a lot of these like Dollar Shave Club companies mm-hmm. or these like pop up startups that like will kind of come and go by the month, and that's what young people are buying because they're just much more relatable than these traditional corporations. So like they see these trends, and it's like, well, how do we stay up to the times? Like we have to get involved with the culture, and I don't think that that's just inherently wrong. Like I, I do think that. You know, there's something to be said about just like celebrity endorsements, you know, when, when brands kind of spout off for a cause, they're also they're helping to like shift the Overton window a bit culturally because it's like, um, I don't know, like think about like the Caitlyn Jenner thing, like Caitlyn Jenner comes out. She's very controversial. And like, obviously, a lot of people are like, well, Bruce Jenner killed somebody with, with their car drunk driving. So like you have this weird thing. And then like she's on TV being like, I'm like more of a traditional woman, like I'm more like conservative or whatever. So like. From, like, the trans community perspective, it's like, okay, like, this person's maybe not perfectly ideal for, like, our movement, but she's still, like, a figurehead that's moving the window in the direction they want to move in. Mm -hmm. So I think about, in terms of that, I mean, like, there's some good, I guess you could point out, by being like, hey, you know, brands are going to advertise no matter what. They're going to sell to us no matter what. Like, you can't just press stop on a corporation. Like, they're going to keep growing until they go into the ground. So, I mean, if they're going to keep growing, better have them champion good causes than just go after the almighty dollar by itself. Like, so I, you could make that argument, I guess. But again, like if you drill down the efficacy to the root, I mean, it's all ultimately about a bottom line. So it's hard to it's hard to, to make any moral high ground statement from my perspective. But I think the same thing about staking. It's like I could have from an individual level, I could have my own ethics and my own perspective on what i'm doing and say hey like i'm making a difference in this individual's life who i just mail coupons to or i just like help make this story go viral to get this dog adopted which we did (laughs) the other month it's like that stuff's cool and like it means something but like ultimately i know my job is to advertise and that's just the reality of it so i don't really i don't know i think there's there's definitely an ethical tension there but it's it's very complicated yeah so if you you said uh, advertising is kind of out of space unethical um mm-hmm. how i mean how do you sleep at night i mean what do you do, do you how do you reconcile that with your self-conception or like do you view this as just something you're doing right now and you want to move mm-hmm. on to something else uh when, when you can i think about it every day so i don't really i mean 
I, I'm good at compartmentalizing. I'll say that. Like, uh, my wife is vegan, actually, and I, um, <laughs> so I, I subsequently, like, I'm, I'm big into philosophy, and I've never heard a good philosophical argument for eating meat, you know, from, like, when you boil down the ethics. So, like, from that perspective, I mean, I work, I work it the same way to advertising. It's like, how do I, how do I sleep at night? I don't know, because I think there's ethical tension involved in almost every area of life. Like, you take even something like veganism, you can take it from the individual level or you can take it to the corporate level. And it's like you are an individual uh, person, personhood, like you can make the lifestyle change to be vegan, but making the lifestyle change on its own won't change systemic, you know, um, like meat manufacturing. Like we've seen the rise in demand in vegan food has skyrocketed the past couple of years, but so is the demand for meat. So like it's this weird thing where I think people – I don't know. It's like, like in terms of that, people think it's a zero sum game. I don't think it is. I think it's the same with advertising. Like people think, oh, well, if you just of all these companies just stop advertising, we'll be good. Right. But it's just it doesn't work like that. Like there's always going to be advertising in some capacity. Like I think, you know, you could you could point to the more leftist arguments, which would be like, well, we got to socialize all these industries and, and, and um, you know, have the owners or have the workers own the means of production, which would help to curb some of these like really fringe corporate um, problems that are like just driving for profit and they're like they're you know advertising at any means necessary essentially which you know regulation all that i agree that that would help curb things but you're still not going to stop competition like you're not going to stop stakem from trying to advertise and compete against its like regional meat competitors so i think the only thing that helps me sleep at night is just knowing that it's a necessary evil right now you know like i think it's one of those things where, like with, with socialists where people say, well, if you're a socialist, why don't you donate all your money? It's like, well, if you if you if you hate advertising, why don't you just quit your job in advertising? It's like it's not really the point. Like, I think it's a systemic problem. And if you want to fix systemic problems, you need like systemic whole like wholesome, wholesome uh, critiques of that. You can't just on an individual level quit your job or stop eating meat like it doesn't. You can do that. It'll make you feel better as an individual, but it's not going to fix the the larger problem that I'm trying to point out. So like, I don't, I don't know. I, I, I think about it all the time. I have a lot of thoughts on it, but it's definitely not something like for anyone who thinks like I, I love advertising in the sense of, I love my work. I think it's fun. Like I like, I'm a very a charismatic person. So I like to sell people on anything. Like I'm drinking my buddy Nelson's, uh, he, he owns a lo- local coffee roastery company called speakeasy. Like every time someone brings up coffee, I meet them in public. I'm like, Oh my buddy Nelson. Like, he makes this amazing coffee. Like everybody loves his coffee. Like I'm not thinking about it in terms of advertising. I just like to sell people, whether it's a guy like you or I'm like, Oh, you know, this guy, Aria, he has a really cool podcast. You should listen to it. Like I'm, I'm that guy. Like I'm, I've always been very, uh, very influential in terms of like what I consume and I like other people to, to know what I like. So, you know, part of its personality, but also, you know, it's, it's always locked in that tension of knowing that, you know, what I'm doing isn't necessarily a great thing for society. So, Mm. Um, you made me think of, well, I guess, uh, uh, so, you know, there's a saying like, uh, there's no ethical consumption under capitalism. It's just like, you know, right. we're all trapped in this, uh, massive system. And if you, like any purchase you make, there <laughs> involves exploitation if you drill yeah. down far enough. Um, so, um, have you, uh, have you watched, uh, Nathan for you? I know the show. My name's Nathan. So like everyone's always okay. like, you know, this show. And I'm like, I've seen clips from it, but I'm not like an avid watcher. No. Okay. You might, yeah, you might check it out. It's on Hulu. I, I missed it like when it first aired and then kept on seeing kind of weird Twitter types talking about it. Mm-hmm. And it's, it wants like a parody of 
like reality TV and like the shows like Bar Rescue or those kind of shows where like they go to a small business and like make them over. Right. But the guy, the host, um, he always has like these totally off the wall, absurd ideas, which he tries to implement. And it is kind of like a weird, like it just, it makes, I think you would uh, vibe with it. I think it's, it, it's, <laughs> it's like a hidden critique of capitalism in a lot of ways um, because you see how these like small business owners outside Los Angeles and they're almost, it seems like the majority of them, maybe the vast majority are immigrants or running mm-hmm. small businesses. Um, they're just like willing to like take any idea that he offers because one, um, he's on TV and so they're going to do what the man from TV says. And two, like they're just, they're, they are desperate to like get more customers. And so he right, right. comes up with these totally uh, crazy, absurd ideas. Um, <laughs> so, okay. So let's, yeah. Why don't we talk about the, the piece that you wrote for Vulture, the brand history, uh, brand Twitter, um, history of brand Twitter. We talked about it a little bit. Um, so, well, I guess, I mean, it's funny to look back on some of the like very, very early things when people didn't really know how to use Twitter exactly. And, mm-hmm. There was sometimes just the like social media manager accidentally tweeting something like that was supposed to be a private message or something, and that, but, yep. but it, like somehow it's still up ten years later. And then, <laughs> um, I mean, the I, I think the the time when it, like newspapers, the moment that like newspapers started writing about like what a brand did on Twitter was that thing with Oreo and the Super Bowl. Yep. Um, yep. And uh, for people who don't remember, this was I don't know 2011 or 12 or something, and the uh, there was a blackout. Uh, in the middle of the game at the Super Bowl, and it took them like 20 minutes to get the lights back on. And someone at Oreo had, like, the graphic designers were, were ready to go and created this cute image of, you know, like, you can drink an Oreo, like, you can eat an Oreo with the lights off or on or something along those yeah. lines. And, like, people <laughs> went nuts for it. And, and this was, I know it was like an inflection point because it was almost like the the brands were acknowledging that, like, you know, we're existing in this weird society where we're all like consuming the same thing at the same time. And, you know, it was like, wow, I'm watching the Super Bowl and like Oreo seems to be watching the Super Bowl too. And they just made a, <laughs> they just made a yep. Photoshop of it right now. So <laughs> and they're like, that's cool. Like we're both doing the same thing at the same time. But, and then it kind of like, I, it, it seems like that, that was like the inflection point for like the brand, like the brand consciousness, the brand is not just telling you like, you can get some coupons in the Sunday circular or something. It's like the brand exists in the same world that we do or something. Does that make sense? Oh my gosh. Yeah. There was that, yeah, that whole trend it's called um, real time marketing, which yeah, Oreo like championed that year. It was 2013 when they put that tweet out. And that was like, there was a couple brands from like 2011, 2012 ish that were also kind of like dabbing into that area. But that was the first like really big viral moment that uh that took everybody by storm in, in terms of you know people were like whoa what is this brand doing and then of course from there on out like every brand started just jumping into every cultural conversation like even like the most recent example you can point to just um i don't know when this episode will come out but just uh yesterday or two days ago whenever it was there was the whole um area 51 like the memes started going everywhere right. where everybody's like oh we're gonna storm area 51 so as soon as that becomes like an international, you know, cross-cultural conversation on all social media platforms, all the brands jump in. It's just like the thing that everybody's talking about. And we see this, you know, that, that trend started then. We still see it to this day where it's like anytime there's something where everybody is talking about it, it's just the thing to do. Like there was a whole thing I remember like last year or two years ago where like the Doritos, I think it was, was under fire because one of their... Uh, higher ups like it was like a vp or something like that she made some statement in an interview that was like 
were thinking about developing like a line of Doritos for women. Right. Remember that whole thing? Yeah. And then it's like that went viral and everybody's pissed about that on Twitter. <laughs> so of course all the brands jump in. It's like, let's, we're not going to just be exclusive. Like we're not, or we're not going to like pander to like one gender. Like we're for everybody. And so it's just anytime something like this happens, you know, brands are just like, let's get on it. Like we're, we got to have somebody on the deck ready to go. And yeah, to your point, like that just, that just, um, it escalates this whole human human integration to what advertising is because just like the Super Bowl, it's like we love Super Bowl ads. You know, it's like a national pastime in America where everybody, it's like, what are the best ads this year at the Super Bowl? Right. Um, it's a similar thing with brands. Like brands looked at the Super Bowl. They looked at, you know, those older ads from like maybe the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s that were, that became iconic. And they were like, okay, like people do like ads when they're well done. So it's like, how do we, in this new world of social media, like how do we integrate in a way where people are going to want to see us post. Like, they're going to want to see our reaction. And that's obviously when we got really, really weird because you can't really... When you look at, like, Facebook or, or Instagram, these other companies, like, or even YouTube pre-roll ads, like, you're seeing... What you're seeing is a pretty clear ad advertisement. Like, you're seeing a sponsored post or you're seeing something that is just, like, buy our product. But on Twitter, you're just... When you tweet something as a brand, you're caught up in the same stream as everybody from... Kim Kardashian to Donald Trump to your favorite weird Twitter user, like you're just in the mix. Like you're not. It's very. It's much more difficult for a just everyday user to you know separate. Like, oh, am I looking at this brand tweet or am I looking at just this tweet from my friend because they look so similar in the feed? So yeah, that's that's when that whole trend started. <laughs> yeah, and it's um, yeah. I think the point about how on Twitter everything looks the same is part of the weird the weirdness of Twitter, and you can see a tweet from like a random person who you follow because they're funny and they're doing a joke and then a tweet from some person saying like, uh, well, my dog died yesterday. And then you see a tweet right. from Skittles saying, how many Skittles will you bring to Area 51? And it's just it's like, <laughs> you know, it's like, it's enough to drive people crazy. And I, I guess a lot of people are, are driven crazy by this. Um, yep. So so how do you use, like, are you, you're the general social media manager for this brand. So are you... How would you compare? What is the strat? Is there a different strategy for Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, or because Twitter is like its own weird thing, whereas Facebook is more like for the normies and the grandpas out there. Um, yeah. So how do you is 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 Snakeums more traditional and on on Facebook? That's a good point. We actually almost completely stopped using Facebook since we started using Twitter, just because it is pay to play and like everything on Twitter is organic. Like if we if I were to post like a meme or whatever, like a product post from Twitter to Facebook right now, it would maybe get three likes because it just no one's going to see it, you know? So, um, yeah, we initially were kind of doing both. We were initially figuring out like what would the audience on Facebook like? What would the audience on Instagram like? And it eventually got to the point where, you know, Instagram, you can still grow organically. It's still pretty hard, but you can still if you have really good content, you'll grow. But uh, Facebook is just a complete there's zero virtually zero reach unless you're like an already pre-established popular brand in some way like people will follow a company like barstool or buzzfeed where it's like you've already kind of like chosen to follow this on a daily basis so the engagement's really high but for a brand like us there's no one on facebook who's like choosing to follow stakem at this point so yeah like it, we did delineate between those two things and like we still use instagram so we like which is very meme heavy for like mm -hmm. what we do so we definitely post more, but it's, but it's still to what you're saying, like it's still an extremely online 
audience. Um, like they stole like this, the same irony infused jokes on Twitter will be gotten on Instagram mm-hmm. pretty much. But if we were using Facebook, there is definitely a, a separation or same with like radio ads or YouTube pre-roll ads. Like there's sort of these subtle ways where we'll maybe take a joke that we made on Twitter and we'll translate that into a radio ad, but we'll kind of clean it up a little bit, mm-hmm. you know, make it a little bit more corporate, a little more palatable for the, the everyday Joe, who's driving home from work that day and just listening to their favorite radio station or whatever, and they're not, they're not gonna, like, it's just gonna go straight over their head if there's, like, too much irony. So, uh, yeah, there's definitely differences there, but I try to, I try to keep everything within that Twitter realm because it's what I know best and because we don't have to put any extra money into anything else, which has been huge for what we're doing. Yeah, and I mean, we've experienced, you know, the same thing. Um, you know, blogging, blogging has just had a, a Facebook page and a Twitter page for at least 10 years and uh, probably more. And, um, you know, the, like Facebook is essentially like a, like, um, you know, extortion racket at this point for, for yeah. other companies or any organization that wants, um, to put, you know, their content forward because we'll get, you know, somewhere around like 5,000 or so people like blogging heads on Facebook. And then the average post will get like 300 or under so uh, <laughs> things because we, and it's always like, do you want to boost this post? $20 will let you boost this post. So it's, and it, it wasn't exactly. always this way. So it, it always, it is almost like a shakedown racket of, it was like, well, nice promotion platform we got here. Uh, be a shame if something happened to it. <laughs> and then like something happened to it, which is like they, you, you're, they're only showing it to 5% of the people mm-hmm. who, who like the post. Um, Okay, let me uh let, let's talk about the um the mental health thread that you wrote last year. And I, I just checking recently I saw you kind of not like went back on it, but you kind of like said you wouldn't do the same thing again or or something along those lines. So what okay, so why did you decide to post this and why do you think it went super viral? <laughs> well, okay. So initially if you go this is weird because again it's like kind of the stakeum following it's sort of it's still very obscure comparatively to like a wendy's or a denny's so it's just for people listening who don't follow it or whatever i mean if you followed the account from like 2017 to the point where i wrote that thread which is like the end of 2018 um i was doing all these, these threads all the time like it was just one of these things where because the audience was a lot smaller and the types of people that were coming to the account were just like leagues apart from the, the types of people that would go to like a wendy's or a denny's not because it's not like Wendy's doesn't have extremely online people following them because they definitely do, but it's also just like mass popular appeal or a stake was still kind of like niche and away from like the, the mainstream types of brands. So um, the types of stuff I would post, like I'd get into these like weird existential motivational, like life coach, almost sounding rants from time to time, literally because like I said before, everything I tweeted from that account was just stream of conscience. I was like, you know, maybe I'd be going through my day and like, I'd just start thinking about whatever the hell, like some philosophical concept. And I'd be like, how can I turn this into a steak tweet? And that's all I would do. Like I was literally in my life. I might be in the shower. I might be driving. I might be listening to a podcast and I hear some idea that really resonates with me. And I'm like, oh, how can I turn this into a tweet? Because it was just fun for me to craft tweets that way. So I had been doing that style for a long time, just this kind of like weird, like pseudo motivational, pseudo inspirational, whatever you want to call it. And um, that thread was literally just another one of those threads. It was never like when I wrote it out, it was a, I think it was a Monday or Tuesday afternoon. It was a slow day, like just like all Mondays are like it was just kind of boring. And I always have like a, a notepad on my laptop of drafts of just like potential tweets and like ideas to start on. And that was just an idea I had. It was like, oh, like here's some like millennial angst topics that I know resonate with a lot of people. Like, how can I turn this into 
a tweet and I just started writing the tweet out. Like it was just a little thread and um, yeah, it blew up almost instantly. Like within, it was the end of the day that I finished it. Within an hour, our agency got a call from Fortune Magazine being like, we think your account was hacked. Uh, like, what, what happened here? <laughs> and I was like, uh, no, we weren't hacked. Like, it's we're, we're okay. It's fine. And uh, I was terrified because we had never gotten that type of attention. Like, we had we ended up doing interviews with, like, Vox and the Washington Post and um, just a bunch. Like, I've Eater. We did, like, a bunch of different companies that were uh, reaching out for, like, what, what's the story? What's the big thing behind this? And it was really scary at first just because I didn't know how my bosses were going to take it. I didn't know how it was going to be received publicly. And it's definitely, like, if we're talking percentages, I'd say 90-plus percent um, liked it. Like, they just enjoyed it. They thought it was a good observation. They moved on with their life. But then, like, the very vocal 5 to 10 percent of, like, your weird Twitter types, your cultural critic types, your, um, like, your anti-consumerist people, they latched onto it and were like, this is not good. This is, like, a very odd form of marketing. It's it's kind of exploiting millennial angst and it's exploiting um you know like what brands or it's, it's exploiting the feelings that young people are experiencing today that everybody relates because like every comedian now is talking about depression because every young person is depressed and that's what the brand was doing now so anyway like that's and then, but again when i wrote the thread i wasn't thinking about any of this it was just like a thought that i had and i put it down and went viral so it was cool that it went viral it was also a bummer because i didn't want people to like it then immediately became part of this like trajectory like i wrote in the uh, vulture article which was like brands going from you know whether it's uh like just real-time marketing like the oreo tweet to wendy's doing clapbacks to absurdist humor to now this and it's like here's kind of like the next phase and what these brands are doing which is kind of like pseudo wokeness and then you had like the whole sunny d tweet where they tweeted i can't do this anymore during the super bowl this past year, which was in reference to the actual Super Bowl sucking, but then it became memed instantly because that's what happens on Twitter. And everyone's like, "Oh, Sunny D's depressed," and they didn't. I know the social media manager for Sunny D, and she didn't mean for it to go that way. But once it got memed that way, she just kind of rolled with it. And when you roll with it, it's like you're not disavowing the statement. So like, it just kind of became what it was. So like, yeah, it's kind of weird that I got lumped into this now. What is now a trend? of like you see Burger King doing their feel your way campaign, right, which is like the right. sad, sad meals, basically angry meals, whatever, like kind of jabbing at McDonald's. And uh, you're just seeing it more and more now. And I didn't really, I don't know how much of a part I actually played in it. I know we did play a part in so far as like the media coverage, because now all the media articles that get written up about new brands that do it, they always reference back to our thread about it. So maybe we had a big role in it. I don't know, but it does suck that that happened. And, and recently, um, the, the YouTube uh, company or media company, whatever, Wisecrack, they did a video like just the other day that was about like depressed brands online, and they uh, they referenced our thread in it. So that's that's why I kind of brought up brought it up again a couple days ago, being like, hey, we uh, strayed away from this type of content because enough people were like, hey, brands shouldn't be doing this. So I was just kind of putting a stake at the, a stake in the ground being like, hey, we, we're trying to we're listening to you guys, you know? Yeah. So I'll just read at least a little bit of this. Um, yeah, go ahead. So uh, you tweeted, uh, why are some or Sagum tweeted, why are so many young people flocking to brands and social media for love, guidance and attention? I'll tell you why. They're isolated from real communities, working service jobs they hate while barely making ends meet. And I only just realized this, that you, you have meet spelled uh, M-E-A-T. <laughs> Uh, and I didn't, I didn't catch it the first time I read this and are, are living with unchecked personal slash mental health problems. They're crushed by student death, disenfranchised by past generations and are dreading the future of our world every day from mass media addiction and the struggle 
to not just be happy, but, but to survive this chaotic time with every problem happening at once under a microscope. Okay, so you go on. So this is like, yeah, yeah. this is like very, very different from what any company would have even thought of doing yeah. like five years ago, <laughs> you know, let alone like, you know, the um, I want to buy the world a Coke kind of thing. Right. So, so, okay, so this was a genuine sentiment you had. And then it later, once people saw that this got a lot of attention, you think the other brands are like, okay, bring in the depressed person to kind of write some copy for us. Um, probably, probably. <laughs> yeah, it's just, I mean, it's a, it's a very interesting, like, cultural phenomenon, and I, I don't know how I feel about it, honestly. Um, but certainly, uh, like, there's a lot more conversation on social media about mental illness um, than in any other, you know, like, forum in American life. And, um, you know, it's like, why are millennials depressed? Well, here's one one possible reason. I mean, you got kind of political on this. Did you get any? Um, did you get any blowback on that angle that you were like talking about? Uh, you, you know, like the the disenfranchised by past generations and uh, too much student debt. Like these are kind of you know, like this. This is not just social. Like this is a political thing. And I'm sure there are some Trump supporters who enjoy Stakem. Um, yeah. Did you get Dude, that, that was a measured like uh, line of thought that I had, at least. I, I always try to r- ride the line between, you know, political ideology. For what it's, I hate that I have to do it, but it's for the brand. Like, I, I joke that we're, we try to be third way as a brand, which isn't <laughs> my political ideology, but it's like that's kind of what you have to do in terms of not – unless you want to be a Gillette or you want to be a Nike and you just, like, want to put, you know, your foot down and be like, this is what we believe. Um, but, yeah, no, we didn't get any major pushback. We got a couple – egg accounts that would be like you don't know how good you have it like back in my day like this is just like millennial like bs like we had a, a few like one-off accounts that were just angry at the, the whole sentiment because they're like victim mentality victim mentality and and that's to be expected with anything like that but there was no um no no, no major pushback i mean it seemed pretty um bipartisan in terms of just like you know people from all across where it's like yeah good observation stake them and i had a lot of weird <laughs> twitter accounts being like because I'm in conversation with a lot of them in like DM rooms and stuff being like, well, why didn't you just post this like on your personal account if you felt it? And I was like, well, one, I, I don't really use my personal account too often. Like I use it more now than I did then. But uh, it's just it's one of those things. I don't think it would have gone anywhere if it was on my personal account. Like they're not the observations themselves aren't deep in any way. Like they're not earth shattering observations. It's, it's the most basic surface level thing. It's just the fact that it came from a brand that yeah. makes it more uh, just absurd and more newsworthy so like it's i don't know it's one of these things where yeah like it was just they were my thoughts uh I, we got a little bit of pushback from both the left and the right from like one-off accounts but like i said it was mostly i think it mostly started the snowball effect into like the sunny d era where then like the sunny d tweet really took that whole uh, cultural critique to the next level because then you had massive public figures and youtubers and like like shows that were producing content around that tweet being like what is going on with brands and then it became like tied into that conversation being like well it seems like stakem might have started this like maybe there was something before it but like we kind of got roped into it because i think had the sunny d tweet not happened and had like nothing since that point happened i think it would have just gotten forgotten and like the tweet would have been like a one-off weird thing and the trend never would have taken off, but because the trend did take off in marketing, uh, you're seeing a lot more of like Stakem started this whole thing, whatever. And I don't know if we did, but that's just kind of how the the media narrative is being painted. So, so yeah, it's it's uh we definitely got some pushback, but no, the overwhelm. Like I'll just say, I mean, I, I'm the one running the account. Like I've I looked at 
I couldn't look at every tweak. There's so many, but um, every single from everything that I I gathered from our analytics and everything, it just seemed like almost all positive response to it being like right on Stakeham, like cool observation. So <laughs> yeah, I don't know. <laughs> um, okay, so maybe just a couple more questions. We're, we're a bit over an hour now. Oh okay, yeah, sure. So um, I mean, one of the weird things about Twitter is like the risk reward like balance is way off because the, 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 the risk for any like person out there who tweets something stupid is they'll get fired yeah, or they'll be forced to resign or, but you know, their, their spouse will leave them. Um, you know, if they post a private photo or something like that. So right, there's, right. there's all these things that like, you know, like any person out there could tweet like a certain number of racial slurs <laughs> or even just one. And like their life is essentially over. And then what's the reward of doing a tweet? Well, someone might like it or retweet it, and that feels a little bit good, but it's a very fleeting, like, as a normal Twitter user, it's a very fleeting feeling. Right, if something right. goes viral, like, okay, an hour later, you're like, well, you know, my life hasn't changed. I'm really not any better. So how do you view this from, like, would you agree with this? And how do you view this from, like, the brand perspective of if you're thinking of doing something edgy, um, you know, what is the real reward versus what is the risk that people are like, Stakeham is canceled, um, you know, get, yeah. get, get him out of here. I've been waiting for the day we get canceled. Literally, <laughs> like, since we started on Twitter, I'm like, it will come. I will send a tweet that is problematic. Something's going to happen. We'll be shot down. But it hasn't happened yet, but it's going to happen. I know it will. Um, I, I, this kind of goes back to what you were, you were talking about earlier, this whole idea of, like, the, the trajectory and, like, like what's going to be next? Like, what's the future look like here? And I think because we're in this weird time where economically so much is changing and even though the legacy brands that exist like the Wendy's or the Steakums or like these, these older, larger companies, or even like your, your current, like newer corporations like Facebook, Amazon, like Netflix, et cetera, even though a lot of these companies still have massive shares of the market, you're seeing that they're for the first time, I think, like in, in ever, they're seeing a, a really tangible threat from smaller companies and startups and like other, like when you look at, especially in the food, food and beverage industry, like you go to a grocery store now and there is, you have like all your traditional, like you have Lay's chips, you have Coca-Cola, you have the, the traditional brands, but you also see all these new brands come in, right? Like it's like new startup companies, mom and mom and pop companies, like everybody is trying to get into different retail space. So because of that, like these older brands and these bigger brands are seeing like the market kind of getting bigger and, and being carved up in these new ways. So that when they look at the, their trajectory, like into the future of like their market, their sale, their sales demographic and all that, they're thinking, how are we going to stay on top? And I think a lot of them ultimately are getting to this this realization where they're like, we're not going to last that much longer. Like even a company like a Netflix, I think, I mean, Netflix is kind of in that Facebook category now where it's so massive, it's hard to imagine a world without them. But I think even these bigger companies are starting to realize like, man, you know, unless, you know, we, we do something to kind of get with the times, like unless we go gluten free or vegan, or we're like, supporting some like charitable cause that or social justice cause that everybody loves like unless we do something to get like the gen z generation to really latch on in a matter of 20 40 50 years we're not going to be relevant to like the the new generation of kids coming up because they're just way more consumer savvy they're way more into like niche brands and all that so i think because of that you see a lot more of this provocateur um, like at like outrage marketing, these stunts, like the whole um the whole thing with what's Vita Vita Coco, the girl, the social media manager, she the pissed peeing, in the peeing yeah. in the thing. Yeah, why don't you just explain that for people? Who yeah, are yeah, not no, on sure. Like, <laughs> so there's this guy who's like a he's like a pretty prominent like 
uh, political Twitter personality, Tony Pisnatsky, I think his name is. He was tweeting at the brand Vita Coco and basically saying your, your product sucks. I'd rather drink your social media manager's piss than your coconut water. And they responded with a picture of the supposedly social media manager with a jar of Vita Coco, like a clear jar with pee in it. And they were like, send us your address. And of course, it goes viral. Everybody's like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe I branded this. And I think you're going to see a ton more of that stuff because, like you said, it is high risk. It, it definitely is high risk. But because of the attention economy and because it's so hard for anybody to stand out, whether you're a podcast, a YouTube, a brand, like, like a food brand, it's really hard to stand out in the market today because there's just so much competition from everywhere. So, like, in order to do that, a lot of these brands are like, oh, how do I stay relevant? I'm like an old brand from the 1950s and the 1970s i'm gonna do something super outrageous like i'm gonna be a provocateur i'm gonna do some kind of weird stunt you know so like i think there's these weird calculations going on where in the past you saw a lot more traditional marketing where it's like how do we how do we preserve the brand long term how do we maintain long-term growth i think you're seeing the start of a trend where a lot more of these corporate types are like well there might not be a long term like we have to start thinking short term like how do we spike sales and get get in while the getting's good right now so it definitely is high risk but i think unfortunately you asked earlier what i think the trajectory is i think whatever it is it's going to look like that because because the attention economy is so inundated with with content on every platform you're going to see way more uh, provocateur stunts way more absurdity way more wokeness like you're just going to see all these fringe elements that are very high risk but also high reward if they're done right. So I don't yeah, know. That's, that's where I think it's going. Yeah. The, the Vita Coco thing would be the, the breaking point for me. It's like the brands have gone too far. <laughs> like, like once you're associating your liquid product with liquid, human literal waste, piss. <laughs> the, the, like I, like it's crazy that they, they did that. I, I am a, I'm a piss truther, I guess. I don't think that was <laughs> actual human piss that they were holding because it was so much. Um, that was a lot of yeah. What yeah, like how could this? And they, it's so we'll we'll link to it so people can see if they haven't seen this. But it's a, a young woman holding up like a jar, a glass jar, supposedly filled with piss, and this is their advertisement, you know, for Vita Coco. So yeah, I I think like so how do they one up that like eating shit? Like what is you know what's exactly, a, what's the exactly. next thing? So it, it that seems like it's just that's a dead end. It seems to me. Um, I hope so. I hope so at least. Um, okay, so maybe this will be the last question. So. um so I am part of uh, the blogging and social media team, such as it is, and mm -hmm. we have a um, very kind of standard like media style that we haven't changed in a long time, and it's kind of based around like uh, uh, accuracy, neutrality, uh, the, the things that uh, one would want the media to embody, right. and right. maybe those are kind of outdated values by now because you sometimes do see media brands like news brands having like attitude or having um, opinions more expressed in their social media stuff. But um, we've been talking about how we can do a better job. And, uh, but I think it is, it is tough because we're, we're describing, you know, describing things that um, people said on our site and like, they did not get paid to come on here. So if we um, miss, you know, describe like overhype it too much or misrepresent it in some way uh, that pisses them off, then they're, you know, they aren't going to want to do this anymore. So yeah, right. So, yeah. So there's that. So how would you, for just a, a very quick um, consultation session, how, what, <laughs> do you, would you have any recommendations for a, uh, you know, adding voice or adding tone or something to, yeah, to, to our social media? You're in a tricky spot, man, because nuance does not sell. Like, so like <laughs> that, the, the thing that you're doing, like you're trying to be 
fair or impartial or whatever you want to call it. I mean, yeah, it just doesn't sell in today's market. I mean, I look at whether it's Vox or BuzzFeed or The Blaze or um, or, any, or, or a Breitbart, like any of these right or left wing uh, leaning media companies, so much of what people follow the companies for and the individual journalists who write for those companies is the personality now, right? It's like we're not we're not really following for cut and dry content anymore. It's not we're like we're post the we're post abolishment of the fairness doctrine, right? So it's like now everything is opinion, everything is rhetoric. It's like how how can I follow like when I go on YouTube and it's I follow a ton of different political YouTubers and whatnot. When I go to follow something like that, I'm not thinking Oh, they're presenting. I am thinking, I guess I should say. I'm trying to think at least that they're presenting information in a fair, well-educated and enlightening way. But I'm also thinking, how is this entertaining me? Like, how is this going to make me feel better? And and also, when you look at whether it's Twitter or YouTube or whatever, I mean, we, this is not news. Like, I'm not <laughs> I'm not the first person to notice this. But I mean, we're being fed what we want to see. Like, it's it's designed to be an echo chamber. Like, your your feed and what you follow, like everything is is pre-designed, you know, to get people to get the most angry they can get or the most like satisfied with they can get. So like it's, it's set in this binary world where it's like you're either going to follow a media company because they're telling you exactly what you already want to hear or it's the opposite. And they're going to tell you something that you don't want to hear and get you pissed so that you respond to that. And for people like you, like I love blogging heads. Like I was DMing you before this. Like I love that there's shows on, on blogging heads. Like you can range from like the like Glenn Lowry show, which is a little more conservative, you know, centrist ish lean in to uh, like Robert Wright, who's like closer to a leftist and like has a lot more like left leaning guests on. And it's great. You know, like I think it's cool that companies like yours, they try to be impartial and you try to be nuanced. But I don't have there's no advice to give you because I think what you're doing, like you described, is the ethical, correct <laughs> approach. It's just, it's just not, it's not marketable, man. Like it just, it sucks. Like unless, because, because, because like it is, it all comes down to rhetoric. Like maybe you could become more marketable in terms of, uh, in terms of that impartiality, if you inserted more rhetoric, you know, like, like similar to what I was saying with the stake account, with this whole like thread that went viral with like the wire, so many young people thing that went viral because it came from a brand, but also because the observations were kind even though it was politicized, it was also still sort of impartial. It wasn't like hitting you in the face with like rhetoric being like, this is like very policy oriented or like you're bad liberals, bad conservatives. So if you're trying to ride that line, maybe inserting a little more uh, rhetoric would, would do you some good. But I think again, it's like, obviously if you're trying to be this, this fair or impartial news organization, that's or information organization, it's a uh, very difficult to do that in the attention economy. It's just not, it's not not a uh, not profitable like certainty. Certainty is what sells. People wanna they wanna know it's good or bad, and then uh, unfortunately you just don't land right there. <laughs> yeah, and you know I I've referenced this in past episodes that um, there was a you know an academic study finding that uh, tweets that were emotionally charged uh, got more retweets and traction and so on mm-hmm. than the more neutral tweets, even if they contain the same information. It's just like. Uh, emotion is what gets you to hit yep. that, smash that RT button. <laughs> and, um, yeah, so that's, um, and, you know, someone who was good at emotion on Twitter, uh, rode that to the White House. So <laughs> it, yeah. it, it works. But that's an, enough said. That's yeah. It. Yeah. Okay. That's so it. you also have a podcast and your own personal Twitter feed. Do you want to briefly plug <laughs> those things? Yeah, sure. I mean, it's just my podcast is, I mean, what you're hearing, how you're hearing me talk right now is essentially how I talk on the podcast. I mean, I have on guests that range from like internet culture personalities to, to people like yourself that are more cultural critics or 
politically oriented or philosophically oriented or comedy. It's just it's it's like your show in the sense there's a lot of uh, ranging topics and it's anything I think is interesting and it tends to center ish around Internet culture because that's obviously what I do for work. So, I mean, that's uh, that's what I mostly cover and talk about unless I'm meeting with people in real life. And then it's just my friends and we're talking about whatever it is that they do. But yeah, and then my Twitter feed is more of the same. It's just like talk about all these issues because I guess that's what people want to hear from me. I didn't really, you know, prior to this, I was I never imagined that I'd be spending this much time talking about Internet culture. But I guess it's one of these things it's like people want to they, they need voices to kind of walk them through the, the absurdity of brands on Twitter or weird Twitter or whatever the corner of the Internet is, because, you know, for normal people whose brains aren't broken <laughs> by uh, being extremely online, like these topics are very confusing. So it's a uh, it's fun. So if anyone's interested in hearing more of my babbling, that's uh, where you can find me. <laughs> OK, I just I thought of one more question that's related to that. So yeah, hit me. I noticed that. Um, the Stakeums account has way more followers than your personal account. Uh, how do you feel? And, but like everyone knows that you are the guy who's running Stakeum, and it's there's some persona and something. And you're, you're talking more about frozen meat products on Stakeum, but it's mm-hmm. like you, you know, you've channeled your creativity into Stakeum, and then um, you know how, how does that make you feel? Is, is it like you know you're sacrificing yourself for the art of yeah. of Stakeum? Yeah, it sucks, man. Um... <laughs> No, it's cool. I mean, it is what it is. Like, it's just, I knew it's my job, right? So like I spend however many hours a week I spend, like back in like the beginning of that account when I was first getting it like up and going, I was spending 60, 70, 80 hours a week on that account tweeting. So like you you put in what you get out, like, and I've never at any point put in that type of time on my personal account. So like, I understand why there's more following. I just put more content out there. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it's like, yeah, I, to what you're saying in terms of like an identity issue i mean it is kind of weird just because you know people know me as the stakeum guy now and that's not really it is me but it's also just like a fraction of what i do or what i'm interested in so there's this weird element of like oh yeah let's talk about stakeum and i'm like well no let's talk about philosophy and like the like plot politics or whatever cultural issue and yeah i don't know it's it's cool it's very cool that uh the account is as big as it is and it sucks at mine's as small as it is but <laughs> I just, I don't know, like, I, I see the people, and you, you don't tweet as rapidly as some people, like, I see the types of people that have large Twitter followings, and they're usually tweeting all day, and I'm like, how do you guys have time to do this? Like, I'm, <laughs> even if I wasn't tweeting, I'd be doing other stuff for work, so, like, it's hard, I only have so much brain energy to put into, like, thoughtful tweets and, and, and uh, just output in general, so, yeah, I, I don't really... I don't put too much thought into it. I mean, it'd be cool if I had 50,000 followers like Stakem does, but uh, <laughs> but I'm over it. It's what it is. So. <laughs> um, okay, let's, that's a good place to end, I think. Um, so, so what, so what, is, it's just your name, your, your Twitter handle? Yeah, it's like, any, you can find me anywhere on social media, just Nathan Allbach. I, I own all of it. It's my real estate, so. <laughs> okay, cool. And um, I am R-E-A-C-W on Twitter. And uh, so thank you, Nathan. Thank you to all of our viewers and listeners out there. And we'll see you again next time. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, man. Appreciate it. Before you go, a quick message from the suits at Blogging Heads TV. Blogging Heads will always be free for you to watch and listen to, and we don't even go the NPR route of guilting you into donating during Pledge Week. But we do have a small request. If you enjoy Blogging Heads programming, rate and review us on iTunes. The iTunes algorithm weighs positive reviews heavily, so taking a few minutes to rate and review us will help more people find out about our shows. Also, of course, we encourage you to subscribe to our Twitter and Facebook feeds. Thank you.